think it was a few months ago, I, I made a quite a bold statement. And somebody asked me, why? How can that be? So I want to attempt to answer one of those questions that someone in our congregation had, and I'm sure other people had the same question. And it dealt with this. How can you say that the tabernacle and the temple and all of the things in the tabernacle and the the feast of Israel and these sort of things that you see in the Old Testament, how can those things point to Jesus Christ? That's a very legitimate question. So I want to attempt to answer part of that question as we look at the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Of course, it's a big subject. There's many chapters in the Bible that deal with this. We don't have time to look at all of them. So we'll just look at a few verses coming from Exodus 25, and we'll see what what the connection of the tabernacle has with the New Testament. Exodus 25, uh, hopefully you've turned there, we'll look at that in just a moment. That's your second book in your Bible. Let me give you a little background before we read these verses together. There is a mountain in the wilderness of the Middle East. It's a very special mountain. It's mentioned throughout the Bible several times. And in fact, it has two different names. It's a bit like uh, our, our mountains, some of our mountains here in New Zealand. They've got a Maori name and an English name. This mountain is named Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. There's a Someone painted a picture of, uh, of the mountain there. It uh, doesn't exactly look like that. Anyway, you can find interesting pictures on the Internet if you wish. But this is a very special place. It was here that God thundered and told Moses to come up to me in Exodus chapter 24. Of course, God is everywhere. He's not limited to one space like a mountain. But that, that particular mountain at, at, at the top was a, a special place. Well, praise God, Moses obeyed. He climbed up that mountain. But the Bible says Moses had to wait six days. How would you have done waiting six days? God tell you to come to him, and then you just sit around for six days. He waited for the direction from God, and then suddenly the silence was broken on the seventh day when God actually spoke to Moses out of the cloud that had covered the top of the mountain. And we see some instruction that God gave to Moses, starting here, well, actually it goes back several chapters, but I want you to see the pattern for the temple. Here was the starting of this pattern of the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle that God gave to Israel. Look at Exodus 25, verse 1. Exodus 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, Ram skins dyed red, badger skins, some translations put dolphin or porpoise skins there. And then acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. 
And let them make me a sanctuary or a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. Accordingly to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. We'll stop there. The God of Israel, of course, freed his people from bondage in Egypt. They had been in bondage in Egypt as slaves for about 400 years plus. God revealed his glory to them here after leaving Egypt and God miraculously delivered them. Sent a lot of plagues on Egypt so that uh, Pharaoh would let them go. God saved them as they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and then God brought the Red Sea down upon the Egyptian army and destroyed them. And God led them in the wilderness through fire and through cloud, eventually brought them to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And now the God of the universe is declaring here that he is going to dwell among them. That's an amazing statement. The God, think about that. The God of the universe who created everything declares, I will dwell among you. I will tent and build my tent among you. And so while they live in tents, God is also going to dwell in a tent, and it's called the tabernacle here. The tabernacle is of such great importance to God's redemptive program. In fact, there's 50 chapters, 50 chapters in the Bible are actually given to explaining the pattern, the, the structure, the, the construction, and even the service, and the priest, and what the priests were to wear, and how they were to do things within that tabernacle. Think about that, because... You only have two chapters in your whole Bible talking about the creation of the whole universe. And God chose to have 50 chapters talking about the tabernacle and its service. So obviously God thinks it's important. We need to study it and learn about it and find out why God put it there. And we're going to just get a, a quick overview of it today. So we see here nothing was left to Moses imagination or his speculation because God revealed it to him here and God revealed it in minute details. Every aspect of the tabernacle seemed to have been covered. But before we look at some of the the details of that, we need to ask the question because I know some of you might be thinking, uh, why study the tabernacle? I mean, that wasn't that for the nation of Israel? What, What does that have to do with us today? Is there any point... So I want to talk about three purposes of the tabernacle before we start looking at individual aspects of it. Okay, What is the purpose of the tabernacle? Number one, the tabernacle stood as a visual reminder to Israel that they served the true and living God. They could not avoid this, this tent, if you will, that was placed right in the middle of their, their community. And so throughout Israel's history, they unfortunately had this tendency of idolatry. They wanted to be like the people around them. And by the way, isn't that our problem as well? We want to be like the people around us, too, and which is why God says, don't be conformed to this world. Well, they had that tendency, and so the tabernacle stood as a visual reminder that they didn't serve the false gods. There was only one God, and they were to serve Him. It helped keep Israel from idol worship that was practiced by all the nations that were around them. They were to be unique and separate and distinct, a light 
to their world. Number two, the tabernacle showed a sinful people how they could come before a holy God. God's holy. We're sinful. Everybody's sinful. That creates a huge problem. It, has, it creates a barrier between us and this holy God. Well, although the tabernacle made God accessible to the Israelites, he was only approachable in holiness. There's a special part of that tabernacle, which we'll talk about in a moment, where the high priest, only the high priest, was allowed to go one time a year. So while he was in a way among them, it showed that he was separate and unique and distinct from them. And they could not approach except through the proper means and ways. So all of the structure, the service of the tabernacle showed Israel how they could worship, how they could offer sacrifice for their sin, which was their biggest problem. And the tabernacle showed how they could receive counsel from the Word of God. Thus it was really a, a, a graphic portrayal, if you, will, if you will, of God's redemptive program for Israel. Just going through the, the tabernacle didn't save them, but it was pointing to the one who could save them. And so every aspect of the tabernacle is really pointing to, to the fulfillment, who of course was Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, God's redemptive plan would come. Number three, the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if, the, if all the, probably not all of the Israelites understood what they were doing and, and why it was there and why go through all these things. Most likely, many of them didn't understand, but surely some did. They understood that these were pointing to Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, by the way, he understood that the tabernacle and, and all the elements and service of it were pointing to him as well. You say, how do you know that? Well, he actually talked about it in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, Jesus, here's what he said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice he talks about the law of Moses. And, of course, the book of Exodus is part of that law of Moses. So Jesus understood that the Old Testament was about him. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, promises were made. In the New Testament, promises were kept. So the tabernacle pointed to Jesus Christ. What is the pattern of the tabernacle? Because God said he gave the pattern, and you need to read the book of Exodus and Leviticus to understand that pattern. I've given you a picture of, uh, I actually have this picture in my office, remind me, hopefully remind me of Jesus Christ and his, his person and his work. And that's, that's one man's opinion of what the tabernacle may have looked like. Of course, the tabernacle was a prefabricated structure that could be moved at will. It didn't stay in one spot. They, they moved around in the wilderness over those 40 years. And its construction, by the way, as we see here in this passage, was a cooperative effort, if you will, between God and the people. God provided the pattern of the tabernacle, but God also told the people to do something, didn't he? He told the people to give a willing sacrifice, a willing offering. He only wanted people coming willingly. God doesn't like grudging uh, givers. 
we should note that Moses was instructed to take the offerings only if they came from willing hearts. So if people were worshiping the gold and the silver and whatever they got from Egypt, and they wanted to hoard it and hold on to it, Moses wasn't supposed to take it from them. It was only from willing hearts. By the way, that's the same as today, isn't it? When we give to God through the church, God only wants us to give willingly. Otherwise, you just keep worshiping your stuff. (laughs) Tabernacle was the focal point of Israel's community and life. You can see, even here, God told them to build the tabernacle right in the middle. And of course, the tabernacle has four sides, and God told exactly which tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, were to camp around the tabernacle. And the book of Numbers tells us that the number of men 20 years of age and older was approximately 600,000. So that means when you, you include women, children, and the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them, we're looking at a number somewhere between uh, 2 to 3 million people. That's a big group, isn't it? Far bigger than Hamilton. And so they're, they're camped around the tabernacle here. Well, let's look at the individual parts of the tabernacle. And, and what does it actually mean in regards to pointing to Jesus Christ? And what does it mean for us? Of course, you look at the, the tabernacle there. Hopefully you'll notice the, the tent that's going all the way around the outside. That was called the outer court. The outer court. Here's another uh, painting done by somebody. You can see. It really wasn't that big of a place. Uh, not, you know, maybe not too much bigger than this hall that you're sitting in, really, if you include the, the kitchen and the room back there and that room in there. And, and uh, if, you, if you put it all together, the place really wasn't much bigger than this school hall. And so the outer court, we have dimensions of it. It was about 50 meters long by 25 meters wide. That's the outer court. It was enclosed by a fine linen curtain, which was about seven and a half feet high. So, about that high. Anyway, the linen curtain was held in place that had 60 pillars. Of course, you can read all this in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. These 60 pillars were made of acacia wood, covered with bronze. Each pillar was secured in in a bronze socket to help keep it in place. And then it would have cords fastened to it at the top, and then they would be tied to the ground by bronze stakes. The pillars were made more secure by a silver bar. Each one of those, those 60 pillars would have a silver bar connecting them together. And then they would hang the curtain on that silver bar. The furniture and its placement typified something. God didn't just give these instructions for His amusement... It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. And so it typified the various ministries of Christ on our behalf. And we'll talk about those ministries that that Christ has and had. And what does it mean for us? So the book of Hebrews is very important in this regard. Because the book of Hebrews is showing that Christ is the best. Christ is better than everything, including the stuff you read in Exodus and Leviticus. It shows that Christ is the fulfillment of everything we see in the tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle was, as Hebrews says, was only a copy. 
It was a, sh- a shadow of things that were to come. It was a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven where Christ is, of course, the high priest. Look at Hebrews 9 on the screen. Hebrews 9.23 says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy, excuse, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Hebrews talks about the tabernacle. It, it was a copy. It was a lesser copy of the real thing. So we've looked at the outer court. Let's take a look at some of the pieces of furniture that were inside that outer court. And the first piece is the bronze altar. There's someone's painting of the bronze altar. The bronze altar stood there in the center of that outer court. And it had poles that would go through rings so that they could carry it. But those poles would often be removed uh, as, they would, as they, would, they would set it down. And it was a hollow wooden box. It was overlaid with bronze. It measured 1.4 meters high by 2.3 meters long. And same the other way. It had a bronze grate on the top and also on the side of the altar. What was the purpose of this altar? Well, it was for the purpose of animal sacrifices. These animal, uh, the sacrificial animals were offered on this altar and their blood would be shed for the sins of the people. The bronze altar, of course, is, is typifying something about Jesus and his work. Of course, the Old Testament, when someone would offer an animal sacrifice, all it did was cover their sin. It could never take away their sin, Hebrews says. Not till Jesus comes along do we see sin actually being taken away. And so the bronze altar typifies Christ's redemptive work on the cross on our behalf. And so if, if you've ever put your faith in Jesus alone, in his shed blood, then the Bible says you are justified and you receive remission of sins. You say, where is that in the Bible? You find its fulfillment in Romans 3. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a wrath absorber by His blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. By the way, let me point out to you that just as it was impossible for the Israelites to come into God's presence without the sacrificing of blood and the killing of of an innocent animal on that altar, so it is impossible today for us to also come into God's presence without the shedding of blood. Of course, Jesus Christ shed His blood. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you have no hope of walking into God's presence and and communing with Him without Jesus Christ. There was another piece of furniture in that outer court. It was the bronze basin. Uh, Some Bibles, uh, translations call it the laver. There's another painting of it. 
the bronze basin stood in the outer courtyard there between the altar and the, 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 the tabernacle proper, or the tent. The basin was provided, by the way, only for the priest. They had to wash uh, their hands before entering the tabernacle. You can imagine they, uh, they looked pretty disgusting. They smelled pretty bad. You start killing thousands of animals and burning them on the altar, it's not a pleasant smell and a pleasant sight. So they had to wash their hands. And so the basin speaks of Christ as our sanctification. You and I, the Bible describes us as believer priests. In the Old Testament, there were people dedicated as priests. But today, we have our high priest, and if we believe in him alone, then he makes us believer priests. And so we're reminded that Christ has sanctified us for his service, and he, by the way, is continuing to sanctify us by cleansing us from the, the, the daily defilement of sin. Sanctification, you say, what's that? Sanctification is where you are being set apart from sin unto God. It's a process. You, you realize you're not, you're not made perfect when you put your faith in Christ. Maybe that's not a revelation to some of you, but to some people it is, believe it or not. Because many, most of us understand we're still sinners, right? There, there's a difference between being justified and, and being sanctified. You were justified at the moment of sanctification, but you are being sanctified throughout your Christian life. And so Jesus Christ also fulfills that ministry. Ephesians 5 talks about this. Here's what it says, Ephesians 5, 26 Christ, it says, might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How are you sanctified? It's through Christ, through the word. Next piece of furniture, actually this isn't a piece of furniture, it's actually the next major portion of the tabernacle, is is the tabernacle proper, or is sometimes called the tent. Again, you see... Uh, This is in my ESV study Bible, beautiful cutaway uh, drawing there of the tabernacle proper or the tent. Uh, Normally it would would cover all sides, but they've they've cut away part of it there so you can actually see into the two parts of the tabernacle proper. Well, this entire tabernacle tent was only 5 meters wide by 14 meters long, so... It was even, even smaller than this room that you're in at the moment. It wasn't really that big of a place. And by the way, it was also five meters high. It was divided into two sections. As you can see there, it, was, it had the holy place and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place. It was a wooden skeletal structure overlaid with gold. It had no solid roof or front wall. There were five wooden bars that were overlaid with gold that actually pass through the rings, and, that's, and then the frame would be attached to that. So that's the tabernacle proper. Now, I want you to see the two different compartments and what's, what furniture God put in those compartments. The, the biggest part of that is, is where the, the priest would first enter, and that was called the holy place. Again, you see a picture here, someone's graphic art of the Holy place. The whole structure had four coverings, as we read about uh, in Exodus 25 here. First of all, there was an inner lining 
that was embroidered. It was fine twined linen. It must have been beautiful. Uh, no, then number two, then over that would go a, a woven goat hair covering over that linen. And then the third one mentioned here was a ram skin that was dyed red. And then the last one was a waterproof uh, skin, maybe from, well, depends on how you want to translate this, maybe from the porpoise or from something else. And then that was placed on the top so that the, the rainwater couldn't get through. So the holy place was entered through the, uh, the a hanging that they actually called a door. It was, it was, it was uh, like a curtain. And there were three pieces of furniture in that holy place. And all three of these pieces of furniture we'll look at in a moment, but all three of them typify a particular ministry of Christ. And particularly it has to do with fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because when you trust in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sin, the Bible says you become a believer, you become a Christian. And so the next stage, if you will, of, is, is then we now fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're able to commune with Him because of His finished work for us. He was the sacrifice on the altar. And so now we come into the the special place called the holy place. And there's three pieces of furniture. Let's look at each one of them. Number one, the table of showbread. I'm not exactly sure what it looked like as I was looking for pictures and studying this. There were different ideas of what it looked like. Here's one opinion. Of course, it was a table, and the reason it was called the table of showbread is because it was showing the bread. It stood on the right side of the holy place, and there was always to be 12 loaves of bread on the table. These 12 loaves of bread on the table were a meal offering, and of course they were also representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the showbread typified Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, came down from heaven. The Bible says that all who partake of him have eternal life. Jesus even said he is the bread of life. And as the bread of life, he sustains every believer who feeds on him. Now, we don't literally eat his flesh, like some religions believe. Jesus said this in John 6, 51. It's on the screen. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You don't eat his flesh. He gave his flesh. And so that bread in the, in the tabernacle there on the table of showbread was representing Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. And when you eat of him, you will never, ever hunger again. Well, there was also the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand was on the left side of the holy place. It was a um, seven-branched golden lampstand. It was also made of pure gold. And it would have been, uh, the Bible says, it would have been hammered out of one piece of solid gold. And resting on a base, there was a a center stem coming up. and, And from that would have three branches coming up each side of that, as you can see there. Together, that would have made seven lamps. It's a significant number. One of God's favorite numbers in the Bible was seven. And the lamp, with its branches, was modeled on a flowering almond 
tree. And you say, what's the point? <laughs> what is the point? Well, it spoke of Christ as the light of the world. And of course, Christ not only said he was the bread of life, he said he is the light of the world. And all who trust in him are given the light of life. John 8, verse 12 says this. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's the bread of life. He is the light of the world as well. So what are we to do with the light? The Bible actually says we're supposed to do something with Jesus Christ, who is the light. The Bible says we're to hold up the light in this dark world. Why? So the people will look at you and say, oh, aren't you a wonderful person? No, that's not what the Bible says, in case you're wondering. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Matthew 5. These are the words of Jesus. He said, you, that is believers, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So my friend, do you understand the, the purpose for your existence? It's not about you. So that you would lift up Jesus Christ and they would glorify the Father. There was another piece of furniture in the holy place. It was the, it was the altar of incense. Again, you see a picture of the altar of incense. The ESV study Bible says this about it. it Quote, the wooden altar overlaid with pure gold was one meter by half a meter by half a meter. So it was one meter tall by half a meter the other directions. It was transported by means of wooden poles, which were overlaid with gold and inserted through rings attached to the sides of the altar. End quote. So the altar of incense stood there in the holy place with the other furniture, Again, I'll remind you, it has to do with fellowship with Jesus Christ. It was, and by the way, it was also significant that it, it was placed right in front of the veil to the Holy of Holies, that most holy place. So you think of incense, hopefully you think of, of nice-smelling smoke, right? That's what you should be thinking of. And so they would, they would put coals of fire on that bronze altar... And then over the, the coals of fire, there would be sweet incense poured daily on that, and, it would, and that smoke would come up, and it would be that sweet smell. The smoke from the incense curled upward, and the Bible says that incense represents the prayers of God's people. You say, how do you know that? How do you know it represents the prayers of God's people? Look at Revelation 5, verse 8. It says, and when he had, that's Jesus, had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So my, my friends, you understand the New Testament reveals the incense here as the prayers of the saints. And that's significant that the prayers of the saints would be going up before the Holy of Holies. The altar typified Christ as our high priest. The Bible says Christ as our high priest intercedes for us before the Father's throne. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand that even though Jesus is not on this earth, His ministry continues on your behalf, even now, today, and it will tomorrow as well. He intercedes for you. Praise God, because the accuser of the brethren, the devil or Satan, doesn't like you serving God and living for Him. And so he's constantly accusing the brethren, but Jesus Christ intercedes for us as our high priest. Well, in order for the high priest to get into that special place called the most holy place or the holy of holies, he had to go through the veil. Let's talk about the veil because this is significant. You can see a picture or a drawing there of the veil. This, this veil was very heavy. And in fact, uh, as I was reading descriptions about the veil, some said that that veil may have been as as wide as your your thumb to your pinky. It was an incredibly thick veil, very heavy. It hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. And one of the reasons it was thick is because it, it had to separate a holy God from sinful people. Of course, the Bible says that Christ represents the veil. He separates a holy God from sinful people. And so when Christ died on the cross, what happened? In the ta- in the, in, in, well, it wasn't a tabernacle. It was actually a temple, wasn't it? In the temple, there was also a veil. You read the end of Matthew, it says that that veil ripped in two from top to bottom. Christ represents that veil. Because at the moment when the veil of the temple ripped, Jesus died on the cross. He was the substitutionary atonement for sin. So when he died, the veil in the temple was ripped, and he opened the way for salvation. Hebrews 10, verse 19, it's interesting. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. How do we have confidence to enter the holy places? How can you come... Before God, it's only by the blood of Jesus, because he's the veil. Well, what difference has Christ's blood made for us today, you might say? What difference does it make? Well, look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So unlike the God of Islam or other gods... God is gracious and does forgive sin and provided the way of salvation so that you can come before His throne. And He wants you to come before His throne. He invites you to come before Him. He wants you. Well, if you were to walk through that veil and go into the next part, that would, of course, be the Holy of Holies. Some call it the most... Holy place. Again, here's a, uh, someone's drawing of that. Again, the ESV Study Bible says this, quote, The most holy place of the tabernacle tent was a 4.6 meter cube. Not a very big place, is it? Only 4.6 meter cube. And it only had one piece of furniture in there containing the Ark of the Covenant. It was here that Yahweh would descend to meet with His people in a cloud theophany or a divine appearance. 
as, as I said, there was only one piece of furniture in there, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. Again, here's uh, one person's idea, or a group of people, I'm not sure where this picture came from, but uh, the Ark of Covenant looked something like that. It had, uh, and, and it was in the Holy of Holies. It was a rectangular box covered with gold on the inside and the outside. On the top of the ark were two angels. In fact, they were two cherubim, and they faced each other, and they were looking down on the middle part, which was called the mercy seat. And they had outstretched wings over that mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat that the high priest would would come in one time a year, and he would sprinkle blood on the Day of Atonement. Why did he do that? Why did he sprinkle blood on that mercy seat? This act enabled God to cover their sin. And by the way, it was only the high priest who was allowed to go in there. And only that high priest could go in, and only one time a year could he do it. And it was only on the Day of Atonement. And so while the high priest was inside... The people were outside eagerly awaiting to see if God would accept the sacrifice. If he walked out alive, (laughs) that means God accepted the sacrifice. But if he died, then they had to pull him out with a rope. When he walked in, he would tie a rope around his ankle. Because if God killed him, they had to get him out of there somehow. So they eagerly awaited to know, is is God going to accept their sacrifice? Of course, if he appeared, that means the blood was accepted. And for one more year, their sins were covered. Is there a connection to Christ, you say? Of course there's a connection to Christ. Christ is the great high priest. By the way, not only is he the high priest, he's the Lamb of God who gets sacrificed in the outer court. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who is the high priest. And he is the one who shed his blood for us. So he's the high priest who offered his blood to put away sin. Hebrews talks about this as well. Hebrews 7 says, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's work continues today. He intercedes for us. So not only is Christ our high priest, the Bible says he's also our propitiation. Now that's a big $10 word. What does it mean, though? It means he's our wrath absorber. God hates sin. God doesn't overlook sin. God must punish sin. So that creates a huge problem for you and for me. Because we're sinners. The good news is that God took away our sin through Jesus. Jesus was the wrath absorber. He was the propitiation. He took your sin. And so if you put your faith in Jesus by faith alone, then you don't get the wrath that Christ received. You see how it works? God doesn't overlook sin. Somebody has to receive his his wrath. And so if Jesus takes it, then you don't get it. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus, then you get God's wrath. Do Do you see? Somebody has to get it. Either you or Jesus. And so the issue is, who do you put your faith in? 
Of course, the New Testament talks about this. Romans 3.25 shows that Jesus is the wrath absorber. It, said, it says this, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And by the way, it's only by faith. It's not by works. Anyway, Romans 3 goes on to say, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Well, those are all the pieces of the furniture of the tabernacle. We looked at the outer court. We've looked at the tabernacle itself, the proper tent, the two parts of it, all the furniture in the outer court, holy place, and even the Ark of the Covenant itself. So what is the point of the tabernacle? Lest you miss the whole point, I don't want you to miss the point, follow with me here for a moment, okay? What is the whole point? The patterns of the tabernacle were, of course, Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were all pointing to Him. Hebrews says they're only shadows. They're copies of the things that were to come. Jesus fulfilled the copy and the patterns. How did He do that? Well, he has, the Bible says He has justified us by His blood. Justification means He declares us innocent. Jesus took your sin and then he gives you his righteousness. That's justification. He's justified us by his blood, cleanses and feeds us through his word. He lights the path before us, and then he intercedes for us. And then because of Christ, we have access through the veil, and you're able to go before God's throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. And then you're able to obtain mercy and receive forgiveness of sins. The tabernacle had many symbols, had many types. It was a shadow. It was pointing. Of course, the shadows all point to something else, don't they? If you're standing between the ground and the sun, there's going to be a shadow on the other side of you, right? The shadow points to you. But it also says that there's a light. There's only a shadow if there's light. And so, of course, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the shadows were all pointing to Him who is the light of the world. The Bible says He came and tabernacled in this world. He came and dwelt among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He opened the way for God to bring redemption to mankind. And I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews kind of sums this up for us as we think about the tabernacle. This is, this is a good summation for us. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, notice the word tent, referring to the tabernacle. But in this case, it's not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's what he accomplished for you and for me. It's eternal redemption. And by the way, redemption is another big theological word. It just simply means that he bought us from the slave market of sin. We were in bondage to sin before salvation. We were without hope. And so Jesus buys us from the slave market of sin. That's what redemption is. He frees us 
from sin. Well, there is a connection. I want to talk about another connection here. Well, does the tabernacle actually have a New Testament connection other than Hebrews? And it does. The tabernacle actually prefigured the church. It's not the same as the church, but it prefigured the church. And by church, I just mean I'm referring to Christians or believers who have put their faith in only Christ. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul stated in the book of Ephesians. I want you to see the connection here between the tabernacle or the temple and the church. Look what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2. So then you, he's talking about the church there, so then you, the church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that's Jesus, you, the church, I've inserted those words, you, the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the connection there. It's interesting, the word temple or, uh, or, temp- or tabernacle, the same sort of idea, is inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, if you will, was the inner sanctuary of the temple and the tabernacle. And today the Bible says God doesn't uh, dwell in some physical structure. He hasn't told us to build tabernacles and temples today because he doesn't dwell in those kind of structures today. But he dwells in a spiritual body and he calls it the church. Interestingly enough, church means called out ones. And so just as the temple and the tabernacle were uh, places that were holy to be set apart for God's service, so likewise, guess what? The church also should be holy, distinct, separate, unique, and consecrated for God's service. You say, I, I, I don't see how this has to do with me. What does it have to do with you? Well, my friend, guess what? Individual believers and Christians make up the church church is not a building. Church is not bricks and mortar. A church is made of individual Christians who actually have a relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so nowadays God dwells in each believer and God and the Bible says he does that through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now comes within us and dwells within us and we are now you know what Corinthians calls us? Corinthians now calls us a temple. By the way, that was plural in Corinthians, referring to the church. The church that is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a tremendous privilege, isn't it? If you don't fully understand this tremendous privilege, may I suggest to you, you need to make a a concerted effort to study the epistles in your New Testament to find out just how important the church is to Jesus Christ. And what, what does that mean in your everyday living? Jesus Christ loves the church. The Bible says he died for the church. He gave his life for the church. And it is the only institution that will live for all eternity. 
Your relationship with your wife or your husband will die when you die. Government will die. Families will die, but the church will, move, will live on. And so that's a tremendous privilege, and, it, and this privilege should cause us to live a certain way then, shouldn't it? If you understand the significance of being a temple and that you have the Holy Spirit residing within you, well then, guess what? Ephesians goes on to say in chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. As his temple, then, he cares how you and I live. He cares about obeying the commands of Jesus. Your life is to glorify the Father in heaven, not you. You're not here for yourself. You're here for God. And that's one reason why Corinthians goes on to say that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not yours. You're to glorify God with it. So my friend, how are you doing? How are you doing? Do you understand that everything in the Old Testament in regards to the temple and the tabernacle and the feast of Israel and these sort of things, we're all pointing to Jesus Christ. Do you see Jesus? Do you know him? Have you put your faith in him and in only him? Or are you trusting in some works to save you? My friend, please understand, works will not save you. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. (laughs) You must believe in Jesus and in only him. My Christian friend, understand that today the church is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is incumbent upon you to live a holy life. By holy, I mean separate, distinct, unique, not of this world. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? You have to renew your mind. Don't think like the world. You've got to change the way you think. You've got to think like God thinks. How do, you, how do you think like God thinks? Sanctify yourself with the word. Set apart your mind, your life, the way you think through being consumed with this Bible. Do you know the Bible? Do you read it every day? Do you study it? Do you meditate upon it? Do you memorize it? Do you love it? Do you hear it preached? Do you receive it? My friend, don't do what James talks about, being only a hearer, but receive the word. Be a doer as well. Let's pray.